Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Nazita Lajavarti, an attorney and assistant professor of political science at Michigan State University. Her research has been featured in The Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Post, Vox, and The Huffington Post. Today, we'll be talking about her new book, Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Nazita. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Outsiders at Home uses a combination of quantitative methods, including survey experiments, field experiments, and textual analysis of media transcripts to find that citizenship and inclusion of American Muslims is inhibited because American Muslims are viewed negatively by the public, portrayed negatively by the media, and treated negatively by political elites. The book portrays Muslim American citizenship as grudgingly bestowed and remarkably insecure, and you highlight how keenly aware Muslims are of their exclusion and precarity, how they often seek invisibility to avoid discrimination, and how this negatively affects their participation in public life. Before we turn to the book's important findings and the methods you use, let me ask you about how you came to write on this topic and whether your previous work as an attorney impacted the research. Oh, I appreciate that question. Thank you. Um, I think it's important to to take a step back and and think about uh, 9-11. At the time of 9-11, I was in high school and... uh, I observed a massive shift in my community. Um, I saw parents in our religious circles um, remove their uh, their head coverings, especially the, the moms, um, but also um, also the grandfathers. Uh, they would take off their their caps. Um, I experienced our mosques being surveyed. Um, I would hear our telephone lines experience clicks every time we were on the phone, you know, with one another. 
And I wasn't alone, you know? A lot of different people had these experiences. They experienced what they thought was a mass wave of surveillance uh, on, on us. And it's important because the rest of the American public wasn't necessarily aware of how pervasive it was. They didn't necessarily know that it was taking place and how it had come to be authorized under law. But at the same time, there was this population of about 1% of Americans that was going through this, that was experiencing it, that was hyper aware of it. The reality is, is that if you want to ever show harm you need to show that harm exists in multiple domains. You need to leverage and, and honestly bring about uh, evidence. You need to bring evidence to bear. And this book comes out of me trying to meet a totality of the evidence bar. Um, when I was in law school um, from 2009 to 2012, I worked on some research on the Patriot Act. And I came to learn exactly how all of this had unfolded. I began to learn that the experiences that we had thought as a community were happening, but we had no evidence of, I began to understand how they had been authorized. I began to understand how pervasive they were. And I began to understand that we never were really going to know um, how how broadly this had, had um, harmed the American Muslim community unless more research went into it. So in that way, my training as an attorney was quite useful in developing this manuscript. I knew how to bring the totality of the evidence to bear. Um, and so I think that really underlies um, the background of this book. This is a landscape. I'm painting a landscape here of how sociopolitical discrimination can happen in each of these domains uh, that we're about to talk about. So. I would say. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, I really loved the introduction to the book because, and you've given a sort of short version of it, because I really think it situates you as both a researcher and as an American and and shows how it is you are using these sophisticated methods that we'll talk about as the podcast continues but also your your training in law and um, your understanding of American history. Uh, and actually, speaking to the context in American history, a, a lot of listeners may already agree that Mus American Muslims face discrimination. But, but one of the aims of the book, as, as you said in your uh, response, is really about rejecting reliance on anecdote and focusing on evidence. Uh, which we'll talk about why that can be so difficult in this case later. But let, let's start with the type of discrimination and violence that Muslim Americans have faced in the past and, and what has happened since 9-11. And you really tried to give this sort of before 9-11, even though that's hundreds of years, and after 9-11. So if, if you could just give us a little bit of that background, our listeners come from all over the world and not everybody is, a, is an American politics specialist as you are. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I don't want to um, ever posit that this is the entire uh, scope of, of what Muslims have faced in the United States, but I'll, I'll do my best to try to paint this landscape. Um, I think it's important for us to realize that modern-day Islamophobia, as, as we know it, um, it's, not a, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, in fact, Islamophobia goes all the way back to the foundations of this country, um, Muslims were brought over to the United States uh, 
um, as enslaved people, uh, first and foremost. Um, so I think it's important that when we think of modern day Islamophobia to realize that Islamophobia has presented itself in numerous different ways, depending on the group in question. Um, Islamophobia uh, has manifested differently um, because the U.S. Muslim population is incredibly diverse. Uh, it's diverse in terms of immigration histories to this country. It's diverse in terms of racial and ethnic composition. It's diverse in its class disposition. Um, and so the marginalization of Muslims that's taken place is, is going to be different and is going to manifest in different ways. Well, let's begin first and let's start by considering, you know, Black Muslims who today comprise 20% of the U.S. Muslim population. Um, African, uh, African Muslims were brought over to the United States as enslaved people. Um, about 30% of enslaved Africans who arrived in the United States uh, were of Muslim faith. So that is to say that Muslims have been in America for at least 400 years. But actually, the presence of uh, Muslims in America dates back either, there's some, some discussion about this, but either to the early 14th century or to the 16th century. Um, so Moors, for instance, who had been expelled from Spain actually made their way to the Caribbean and possibly to the Gulf of Mexico in the early 14th century. But there's um, a lot of evidence showing that um, there was a man named Estefan who accompanied um, the Spanish actually as a guide to the New World in the early 16th century to discover and conquer what later became uh, Arizona and New Mexico. So the presence of Muslims in this country has been um, has been here. Uh, they've been here for quite a long time. Um, and you can obviously imagine um, the kind of harm that comes with forcibly uh, converting individuals of Muslim faith to Christianity, which is exactly what took place um, with, with enslaved Africans. The Nation of Islam uh, is, is a, a Black political and, and religious movement that began in the 1930s uh, and, and was prominent um, through you know, the 60s and 70s, uh, played a role in the civil rights movement. Um, but the Nation of Islam saw a massive surveillance uh, program that was targeted against its black adherents, in fact. So even prior to 9-11, those with intersectional identities who were both black and Muslim had law enforcement in their lives, not in just the form of traditional street policing, but through the form of surveillance um, where mistrust between um, black Muslims and uh, law enforcement uh, actually escalated to such a point where um, law enforcement ended up uh, once, uh, right before 9-11, actually coming into a New York City mosque and drawing guns uh, in response to a bogus 911 call. Um, so, so that's to say that, you know, the, the Islamophobia that, that Black Muslims have endured in this country is, is very unique um, and, and deserves its own attention in its own right. There's also pre-9-11, oh, I'm sorry, no, I was going to say that uh, I think one of the assets of this book is that uh, you, on the one hand, are nuanced and complex. On the other hand, you never assume that you can answer every question. And I, I guess I just, I what I wanted to say is I, I, I appreciated how you tried to paint this more complex view and how you acknowledged, for example, that Black Muslims are both 
sharing in the kind of uh, intimidation and violence and surveillance and discrimination, but that you also sort of recognize the the limits of this particular research agenda for, for understanding them in their full complexity. I thought that was well done, the sort of trying to acknowledge that this is a big issue that maybe you can't address fully in your book. Yeah, I think you, yeah, I mean, it's, there are so many different subsets of the U.S. Muslim population and such distinct experiences uh, that they've had, especially prior to 9-11, that, that it would be reductive to assume that they're, they're, they follow a similar path, um, if you know what I mean. If I may just very quickly um, highlight some of the, the pre-9-11 um, incidents uh, that, that we might want to consider for those who at least stem from the Middle East, Muslims who, who come have Middle Eastern backgrounds, you know, there is a literature that has shown that discrimination and Islamophobia, um, discrimination for these people was rooted in their national origins. It was less rooted in their Muslim faith. Um, so if you think back to the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis or the 85 TWA hijacking in Lebanon, um, there were many um, racial slurs and ethnic uh, slurs that, that came about that were being leveraged against individuals of Middle Eastern descent during this time, but they were specific to incidents that were taking place in specific countries. Um, and they were being characterized as being associated with national origin and less about being associated with the Islamic faith. Um, this doesn't mean that Islam uh, has not long been constructed, you know, as being in opposition to, to, to the West prior to 9-11. Certainly it was. Um, Khaled Beydoun, uh, he he writes in his, his fantastic book um, that after the Cold War, um, Islam essentially became a suitable replacement for, for the Soviet Union uh, with respect to foreign foreign policy for the United States. And I think that's that's really well put. I, I There's so much in this book, and I want to say that um, I learned a lot. And I, I want to ask you something sort of random, and it's only because it's of great interest to me because I do the Supreme Court. But you talked about two cases, uh, Asawa versus U.S. in 1922 and U.S. versus Thind in 1923, and this distinction on race about common knowledge versus scientific evidence that blew me away. And I'm wondering if you would just share that little piece of the the long history that you're addressing um, and that distinction. Sure. Yeah. So... um I think it's important to, to also realize that part of what makes the diverse subsets of the uh, U.S. Muslim population so so distinct is that different groups had different experiences in the United States, um, especially before uh, 1965 and civil rights. Um, so, if for those of you who uh, who who do not know, from 1790 until I believe 1952. Congress actually restricted naturalizations uh, to white persons, and you could not be naturalized <laughs> unless you were acknowledged uh, to be white under the law. And so a struggle for whiteness actually ensued um, during this time. And Ian Haney Lopez's book, uh, White uh, by Laws, is a terrific book um, to review some of these prerequisite cases. But Essentially, the courts heard 52 cases 
um, between the late 1800s and the uh, mid 1900s. Um, and two of these cases were heard by, by the Supreme Court, so Azawa and, and Thind. And the courts kept dis- oscillating between what standard to use um, and they were determining a person's whiteness. So on the one hand, you could have the common knowledge test, which, which essentially um, relied on what was popularly held as a conception of whiteness. So what would the general public think about a person? Would they consider you to be white? Um, and then there was the, I'm putting this in quotation marks, the scientific evidence test. And this test supposedly relied on, you know, more objective or technical or specialized knowledge. So um, experts would do things like analyze skulls or um, assess differences in complexion or hair um, to try to say something scientific about biological race. Um, and in Thind, the Supreme Court held that uh, common knowledge uh, was was the test to apply, um, which had, uh, of course, ripple effects uh, through the community. And for, for Middle Easterners, um, which included, of course, a subset of the Muslim population, although many of the Middle Easterners who were immigrating during this time period were actually of Christian faith, um, it, it was a period of victory because they were, in fact, classified as white under the law through these cases. Um, so that was actually <laughs> a moment that privileged a subset of um, what would later be, you know, the Muslim population, a part of the Muslim population, in distinct opposition to another subset of uh, Muslims, for instance, Black Muslims. So you can imagine a subset uh, faces segregation, um, has the legacy of slavery. Another subset is able to benefit from privileges of whiteness. So their experiences were actually quite vastly different in the United States. No, it's terrific. And you really capture some of that in, a, in, in really a few paragraphs um, in, in the book. Um, let me ask you a little bit about method, because one of your claims is that it's really essential to have a multidimensional account of hostility towards Muslim Americans. And I'm wondering if you would share with listeners what you mean by multidimensionality and why it's particularly important to the study of American Muslims. Um, and, and you've already addressed sort of who counts as an American Muslim as particularly fraught, uh, but you're, you're intentional about your language in the book. And so maybe you want to address that as well, or maybe you already have, but would explain multidimensionality and why it's so important for for your questions to answer your questions. Certainly. So the question that underlies this whole book is what is the status of Muslims in American democracy? That is the research question. That's a big question. It's expansive. It means so much and it can be interpreted in so many different ways, but it is intentionally large. Um, it's, it's meant to have a number of different answers and a myriad of domains. And so really, I pose the research question to be broad so that I can begin to paint a landscape, so that I can begin to situate Muslim Americans in different spaces um, that are all too familiar in American politics and American society. So for instance, this book doesn't purely focus on anti-Muslim public attitudes and voting behavior, nor does it look at solely the relationship between um, 
you know, uh, anti-Muslim attitudes and immigration policy support. That's not the sole focus here because arguably, as I hope I've set up throughout the first uh, couple chapters of the book, discrimination that Muslims face is multifaceted and it occurs in so many different domains. And as such, the ways in which we begin to answer this quite broad question have to be multidimensional. They have to ask questions in different spaces. So they have to ask about the media, an arguably fourth branch of government. You know, the media is a silent fourth branch, and it's the growing in importance over time. If anything, um, it has to. It has to. It has to ask. Well, what about the treatment of Muslims by their elected officials? When we think about questions of representation, substantive and descriptive, we we often ignore the fact that Muslims are a group that are that are constantly being discussed by legislators on both sides of the aisle negatively. And it's important to answer that question of representation. What are those representation prospects? Another important question is public attitudes. It's not sufficient to use feeling thermometers you know, every few years, whenever they're, you know, somebody deigns to put them on a survey to tell us something about the experiences of this population. It's important to be mindful in developing measures that are rooted in the prejudices that, that are being levied against this group. And so by multidimensional, we have, I, I suppose what I, I mean is we have to examine how sociopolitical discrimination manifests in multiple domains. Um, Sociopolitical discrimination is complex. And so the answers that we give have to be complex too. And it's, it's helped by the fact, you know, of course, that um, we don't have a lot of data out there to answer these questions. And so by being flexible uh, with, with the empirical approaches, as well as the questions that, that, that we pose, um, we can actually uh, be quite adaptable and eventually answer these questions. And you're very careful in the book to show how little data there actually is in, for example, in polling, that the questions are not even asked until 9-11, but we'll we'll get to that um, later. You sort of alluded to this, but there's three overarching questions for the, to the book. First is the extent to which Muslim Americans face discrimination by legislators, media, the fourth estate, as you say, the general public, um, sorry, the the fourth branch of government. Um, Second, how do Muslims view themselves as a group within the United States, within that sociopolitical context? And third, you know, what would it take to reduce discrimination against Muslim Americans? So I I guess what I want to do is you've you've already covered much of chapter two, which tries to establish the sociopolitical position of Muslim Americans before and after 9-11. In chapter three, you introduce your Muslim American resentment scale to help unpack public attitudes. And there you're asking, you know, how does the wider American public view Muslim Americans? And, and how do these attitudes matter in shaping public preferences uh, towards shaping policies, such as, as you've alluded to, increasing surveillance of mosques or targeting Muslims at airport screenings? And, and how do those attitudes translate to 
the political representatives who are elected to make policy. So I was wondering if you just take us through a very short version of chapter three, because I really like to get us through all of them because the book is is so well organized. And it's it's one of these books that's a pleasure to read because each chapter's conclusions lead to the next. So I'm hoping we can get to it all. So So tell us a little bit about the Muslim resentment scale and the answer to those questions. Sure. Um, so I argue that um, we need better measures of attitudes uh, towards American Muslims. Um, I think that public attitudes towards Muslim Americans are quite nuanced and they're specific and they're quite deeply rooted. Um, and many survey instruments, as you just alluded, don't actually have items or questions about Muslims broadly, let alone Muslim Americans in the United States. And so that actually hinders current literature on attitudes towards American Muslims. So I developed this nine item scale of attitudes, um, really, which is rooted in a broad European politics, or actually uh, European educational psychology literature um, that was meant to um, understand how, for instance, um, European teachers held negative attitudes towards their Muslim students. So um, there's a scale that comes from um, the Flemish society uh, about um, about attitudes that the individuals have towards Muslim students. So essentially in the book, I, I show results uh, where I've employed the Muslim American resentment scale and I show its its strong properties. And then what I do is I show that it's a predictor and an important predictor in, in 10 different data sets. Um, I, I, I show that it's an incredibly strong and robust predictor of Trump support. Um, so confirming what, um, what we know, of course, the anti-Muslim attitudes mattered in 2016 uh, anecdotally, but showing that um, they were in fact a, a larger predictor of, of Trump support than um, other uh, other markers of racial resentment. Um, so after party ID, it was actually Muslim American resentment that was the most important influencer of, um, of Trump support during that time. I also show that Muslim American resentment matters for support for the Muslim ban, um, that it matters for immigration policies that want to limit um, immigration from all Muslim countries, that it matters for uh, the Ted Cruz policy uh, that was suggested uh, by, by him when he was a presidential contender uh, during the 2016 campaign to increase the patrolling of Muslim American neighborhoods. Um, and then um, I also show that uh, birthright citizenship, as uh, 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 support for revoking birthright citizenship is also related to, to Muslim American resentment. So. Overall, um, the chapter not only introduces the measure, but it demonstrates its strength in predicting vote choice, candidate support, and, and policy support that have actually been um, put forth by, by our elected officials. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I just want to push in that the I, I often open books like this with a little bit of fear if there's enough charts and data and discussion of quantitative methods, because that's not where I come from in political science. This is a great book in how it balances um, all audiences. Uh, the, the prose is <clears throat> completely understandable for anybody, uh, somebody like me, but the the details and the um, that you go into for for other audiences who are more quantitatively interested is uh, is terrific as well. Having shown this to some colleagues, um, the once once you've yeah no it's 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 a hard thing to do. Um, I'm wondering uh, as the book goes on and you you focus on Muslim American prospects for political incorporation. Given what the Mars scale shows, how how does it affect the election of Muslim American officials, and and how does it um, affect Muslim Americans' descriptive representation in the United States? Yeah, so the the book continues with a discussion of uh, Muslim American prospects for a political incorporation, and um. I, I'm going to use this opportunity to start with the quote that I, I start the, the chapter with. It's a quote from William Lancaster, who was a delegate to the North Carolina Convention in July 20th, 1788. And the quote was as follows. But let us remember that we form a government for millions not yet in existence. I have not the art of divination. In the course of four or five hundred years, I do not know how it will work. This is most certain that Catholics may occupy that chair and Muslims may take it. I see nothing against it. And why do I start with that quote? I start with that Because it's fantastic. (laughs) It's fantastic. (laughs) I start with it because in in the imagination and in in the creation of this country, Muslims were not this other group that nobody could ever imagine, you know, as being belonging to this country, belonging to its, to its politics, to its government. I mean, we were imagined, you know, along, along with this, the creation and, and, and um, the beginning of, of this, this polity. And so that raises questions, you know, what is, what is the prospect for the political incorporation of Muslim Americans? Um, and one way in which we can start to assess that is by running um, experiments called candidate evaluation experiments. These experiments essentially, they randomize uh, research subjects into different experimental treatments and show them fictitious elections and and candidates and platforms and materials, um, and then assess whether or not individuals will vote for them. And in this study, in this chapter, I essentially evaluate if um, American, the American public would vote for uh, Muslim candidates and find that um, 
in fact, uh, they they would not in the aggregate. In fact, uh, they they would not they would not vote for for a Muslim candidate, uh, especially if that person is a uh, is a Democrat. The the results change somewhat when the Muslim candidate is a Republican. Um, so they're they're much more inclined to vote for uh, Muslim Republican candidates, which confirms a lot of the literature actually on other racial and ethnic groups uh, that shows that when they run as uh, Republicans, minority candidates can actually uh, rely on some more support. So this chapter really shows that, um, you know, at least when they run as Democrats, uh, the prospects of of relying on support, uh, electoral support, is, is going to be quite limited. The, the whole first half of the book um, not only demonstrates how the negative views of the public towards Muslim Americans matter for uh, vote choice and policy preferences, but, but it's so interesting how in that first half you highlight just how much the evidence from surveys and experiments is really in this very, very small range of time. I mean, not only did these questions not start getting asked until 9-11, but the surveys and experiments that you're pulling from, a lot of them are between 2016 and 2018. And you see that as a really limited time frame, and you don't want to rely on that for assessing how Muslim Americans have been communicated to the general public over time. So you say that with without that kind of information, especially prior to 9-11, and with the existence of qualitative stuff, but not much quantitative, you you in chapter five turn to the news media as a, a possible lens for assessing how Muslims and Muslim Americans, and there you're very intentional about domestic and uh, global populations, how they've both been portrayed. And I'm wondering if you could take us through your findings here. I thought it was a just a really insightful chapter. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I just kind of want to be um, a little bit, uh, I'm going to take us back in time. So prior to 9-11, when we turned to Roper, uh, which is a database of publicly held surveys, um, at the time that I was writing the book, only three publicly available surveys uh, asked about public opinion towards Islam, Muslims, or Muslim Americans. So what does that mean? Typically, we rely on public opinion data to tell us, you know, how a group has been positioned or situated over time. You know, we can say groups have increased in favorability or maybe they've been less racialized or less salient, um, depending on, on feeling thermometer scales. But no such consistency really existed with this population. And so I turned to the news media, as you said, both as a lens um, to evaluate how you know Muslims globally and the Muslim American population here um, have been communicated to the general public. Um, and in the subsequent chapter, I evaluate whether negative media portrayals about these two populations, which I, I theorize about them as being distinct, matter for shaping public opinion towards the domestic group. And why am I doing this? I'm doing this because despite the fact that Muslim Americans constitute about one 0.1% of the U.S. population, it seems that you cannot turn on uh, the news in, in recent decades without them appearing um, on the news pre, pre-COVID, of course. <laughs> but, um, 
it, it seemed, of course, that that they were they were omnipresent, you know, in our information space. Um, and so that that is uh, something to consider. It's also important to consider that the news media um, gives us a bit of a, a gauge. You know, it's a bit of a thermometer to tell us, okay, how how prevalent are discussions of these populations um, in, in amongst the public? You know, how how often are we being reminded of these groups? And what's also great about the news media is if you're able to collect the universe of information. Um, that's being communicated by the news media to the public, then you can start to evaluate, well, is one group being discussed more or less than the other groups that we might be concerned about? Um, how do their portrayals compare to one another? Is, is the tone more negative or more positive? So there's a lot of, um, um, there's quite an advantage in being able to, to study the news media. So what I do you know, bearing in mind that the media is a powerful communicator of stereotypes, of sustaining stereotypes by overly communicating um, these these findings to, to the public, I I take the universe of available uh, broadcasts from CNN, Fox, and MSNBC from 1992 to 2016, and it should be noted, however, that CNN broadcasts are available from 92 to to, um, to 1997 solely, and that broadcast from Fox and MSNBC begin in uh, 98 and 99, uh, respectively. And so what I find is that, you know, evaluating these, these broadcast news, I find a few, a few important things. So first, um, all of these groups, African-Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, Muslims globally, Muslim Americans, they receive on average more negative coverage than what's typically being aired on CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. So put another way, the sentiment scores that they receive, the average positivity is lower than that of what the average viewer would be seeing on any of these networks. Confirming with the literature, with this really robust literature has already taught us, and so that that you know brings to bear some um, external validity, certainly because of course it's confirming um, this prior excellent literature. However, the sentiment of portrayals about Muslims and Muslim Americans is more negative than these groups, which is important when you consider that. Um, these groups are also being discussed uh, at very high rates. So um, the chapter also establishes that the coverage of Muslims globally, African-Americans and Latinos had actually increased to really unprecedented levels in 2016, occupying you know, between 25% and 40% of news coverage, depending on which platform you're, you're looking at. But that's an incredible and sizable proportion of news coverage that the public is exposed to. So these populations vary in size, of course, but the Muslim population in America is 1%. And they're showing up in between 25 to 40% of news coverage. And when they're being portrayed, it's very negative. Well, that raises questions. Is there a spillover effect? Are these, are these portrayals that are quite voluminous and negative consequential um, for shaping public attitudes? And I find um, in the next chapter, through a number of experiments, 
that yes, they are, that negative portrayals about the foreign group, they influence attitudes towards the domestic one, and they shape support and increase restrictive policy support on a number of different issues. I found those two chapters to be um, both page turners and also really difficult to read um, because of the numbers. Uh, I tend to be a qualitative person, and but looking at the data quantitatively in this case, so powerful in just the the sheer difference in in how portrayal is, and then the effect. So um, together, they're they're just stunning. It's a I I can't recommend reading the book enough, but even just for those two chapters. Um, I want to leave plenty of time for some other insights. So let me ask you, um, you know, chapter three had concluded that the prospects for substantive representation of Muslim Americans was really slim because of the higher MAR uh, preferred candidates and policies um, that were hostile hostile to both global and domestic Muslims. Chapter seven sort of tests that hypothesis um, and asks about how elites treat their Muslim constituents and what that tells us about the prospects for inclusion in the political process. And I was wondering if you could sort of take us through a little bit of that um, as we as we get our way to the conclusion of the book. Certainly. So in this chapter, I present results from two audit studies or correspondence tests um, on uh, state legislators across the United States. So for those who don't know what an audit study is, um, these are field experiments um, where uh, you can evaluate uh, whether uh, essentially um, responses to uh, constituent communication in this in this instant um, have differences are rooted in racial bias. Um, so here uh, I'm I'm testing more about uh, religious <laughs> bias, of course, and I'm evaluating uh, a tenant that we we seem to know in American politics, which is that minorities are often ignored and underrepresented by their elected representatives. Um, so we kind of take that for granted at times. Um, but it, it's important to to evaluate this systematically uh, if whether or not you know elected officials are in fact discriminating against uh, American Muslims. And there's a lot of reasons to expect um, discrimination or you know a response bias essentially against Muslims uh, to be to be partisan, right? So you might expect uh, that all um, elected representatives will not treat uh, Muslims the same, but that perhaps Democrats might be more responsive to their Muslim constituents than will be Republicans. Um, We might also expect that when Muslims um, uh, display or signal that they come from a higher socioeconomic status, um, that they might actually be um, more, uh, more included in uh in, in politics or or that they won't suffer as much um, in terms of uh, their representation. Um, this is especially important because uh, oftentimes um, 
Muslims have been pitted to mirror uh, whites on socioeconomic dimensions. This is something that really Muslims, uh, especially immigrant Muslims, uh, talk a lot about in, in their communities. You know that they uh, that they sort of are wealthy professionals. Um, they have advanced degrees. Uh, they have high college education rates. But again, this ignores, of course, <laughs> the fact that the Muslim population is quite diverse. Um, but however, it's it's an argument that's cast in the in the Muslim space. So how? Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Um, I was just going to explain uh, the study. Um, so essentially, in this study, state legislators were sent these random requests to their email addresses from fictional constituents. Um, in the first study, uh, the fictional constituent is asking for an application uh, for an internship in that legislator's office. And in the second study, it's testing more about access to politics from the uh, perspective of a religious leader, an imam, um, and evaluating whether they could get a legislative visit. And uh, I think the, the responses are, are quite interesting. So by the time we get uh, so to I, the I end of the book, you've you. shown um, the pervasiveness of American Muslim American resentment and discrimination. Aware of their but, but what's left the American is the extent system. to which Muslim Americans um, this is are deeply aware um, of this resentment and the effects of this knowledge. And I was wondering as we head to the conclusion, uh, what you find there and, and where this leads you in thinking about our our politics um, and, and how we think and about Muslim for Americans the and their citizenship. And so the book concludes really by first evaluating uh, U.S. Muslim responses to perceptions of discrimination. Um, so uh, I ask about uh, different measures of societal discrimination that they may have been experiencing um, with the help of my colleague, Kasra Eskui. Uh, we developed some measures um by borrowing somewhat from the uh, Pew questions, but um, essentially there's five questions that ask about the different types of society discrimination that Muslims would face in society, like receiving poor service at uh, restaurants or stores or having people act like they're afraid of them or suspicious of them, being called offensive names, being physically threatened or attacked. And there's also institutional discrimination. So this is discrimination that comes really from the arm of the state so, for instance, being singled out or treated unfairly by the airport, by airport security or by government officials or institutions like the police or observing your local government officials or politicians make negative comments about Muslims. And so, you know, what I find is that there is um, quite uh, across the board, really, um, the Muslims in my samples report uh, somewhat often experiencing each of these domains. And they're more heightened for those who are more religious and more heightened for those who have more insular uh, Muslim networks. And then I think probably um, the most important takeaway is that Muslims are afraid about their futures and future instances of discrimination. They're afraid that they're going to be the victim of violent crime. They're afraid that they're going to be targets of verbal abuse. They're afraid that they're going to be negatively affected by the Trump executive orders. They're afraid that they're going to be asked to turn over information on their phone to airport security or border patrol. You know, they they really are afraid. Um, 
And they believe that these instances on average are more than somewhat likely. And so, you know, I think as we, as we, you know, move forward and consider the positionality of Muslim Americans, you know, both leading up to the Trump presidency, but also now that we transition to a Biden presidency, um, I think it's important to reassess whether that same level of fear um, exists. Um, certainly 2017 was a very traumatic year for American Muslims. You know, three different executive orders that became coined as the Muslim ban. You know, extreme instances of hate crimes and bias incidents. Um, you know, it it's important to, to ask whether this is inclusion and, and where, where they stand moving forward. Um, one important thing I, I'd like to, I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention, I'd like to mention is in the face of discrimination, some Muslims have mobilized. Some are running for office and some are voicing, um, they're, 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 they're voicing this trauma. Um, in 2018, about a hundred Muslims filed to run for election. And of those hundred, about 50 Muslim American candidates, uh, remained, uh, in their races, uh, midway through the primary season. And in 2020, the Council on American Islamic Relations, um, said that of the 110 Muslim Americans who were running for a variety of posts, uh, 57 emerged or were projected to emerge as victorious on November 3rd. Well, it's funny because as I read your conclusion, you seem to be of two really different minds. On the one hand, you had some really optimistic thoughts about possible coalitions, um, but you also have very grim sentences at the very end about um, the possible registry of Muslim immigrants and the possibility of internment camps if there were another terrorist act attack. Um, I guess I'm wondering where you are now and whether anything that you've seen in the 2020 election cycle changes uh, where you left it as you handed in the manuscript? It's been a very difficult four years um, for a lot of minoritized populations, um, including Muslim Americans. Um, and we can't ignore that. We can't ignore the constant trauma that these groups, and Muslims included, have endured. Just because they're happening more often you know, doesn't mean that they're not landing. Um, however, I guess I still remain of two minds. Not only are we seeing a subset of the population mobilize, we're seeing the progressive left emerge uh, through coalitions, you know, through, <laughs> through coalitions that really bond um, different subsets of the population together. And it, it gives me a great amount of joy to see Muslims in that space. I, I want to remind us, you know, for those of us who didn't observe this, but we had a Jewish presidential candidate in the Democratic race. And even after, um, you know, not losing, not, not receiving the nomination, he continued to build alliances between so many different groups in this country. And one group in which he shed a great deal of light on was Muslim Americans. In uh, the fall, Bernie Sanders had a Facebook Live uh, streaming session just on Islamophobia. And I think that, that that is just emblematic of coalition building. 
Well, I'm sorry we have to stop the conversation because this is such a good book and it's such an important topic and we are at a crossroads. And so maybe maybe the right way to end such a book is to be of two minds. Um, the book we've been discussing today is Nazita uh, Lajavardi's uh, Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. It's available on the publisher's website. It's also available on bookshop.org. And we're hoping that you will support your brick and mortar independent bookstores with your purchases, either by going to those individual bookshops to keep them alive during the pandemic or using Bookshop, which will do that. Um, Nazita, before we leave, what are you working on now? What's, what's, what's next for your research? You know, just to keep it uh, joyous, I am working on hate crimes and hate speech. Uh, <laughs> talking about those crosswords. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing some work on um, misinformation, um, the alt-right, hate crimes and hate speech. Well, when you're finished with that book, I would love to have you back on new books. Um, best of luck with the research. It's hard to keep the gaze on what is most problematic and difficult um, as just as living in the United States, but particularly as a researcher. So I really wish you the best of luck um, with it. It's important research. Thank you. It's been a privilege. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.